0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Out Coach. My name is Tim Michalashvili. I'm your host. All Out Coach is our critical forum of discussion in which we translate many of those abstract concepts that seem to be far from us, and we make them more approachable through exact sciences. Today, I have a special guest who's going to talk to us about how to make better health decisions. She's an expert in the field, has a PhD in psychology from, from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She has completed her postdoctoral work at Princeton University with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize laureate, who's an expert in decision making. She's a visiting researcher at Cambridge University and currently a professor at the Ono Academic College. She's also previously taught at Wharton. And so she has a new book called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. She has been published in over 60 different publications in academic peer-reviewed journals. She's advised a number of pharmaceutical companies that are very well-known globally, such as Pfizer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, AbbVie, and a host of others as well. She's helped them on patient outreach on sales training, uh, physician advisory boards, just to name a few. She's also helped advise some technology giants such as Nant Mobile, Hilarium, Gluco as well. And so she offers a wealth of experience on decision-making, on m- making medical information approachable and more meaningful, and also potentially life-saving for many of us. So Talia, with that introduction, I'd like to welcome you to All Out Coach.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. Wow, what an introduction! That's really I appreciate it. It's really
0: wonderful. I'm very, very thorough. I'm I'm humbled. Thank you. Sure, it was my pleasure, and I feel that I was honored to have connected with you over LinkedIn and reading uh, reading about all of your accomplishments and just your work with Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Uh, whom I had uh, reviewed actually two weeks before on, uh, on my uh, weekly lives that I had done on critical thinking. Uh, so I was very excited to uh, have the opportunity to speak to you today. The first question I wanna ask you, Talia, is what made you pursue a career in studying medical decision-making in the first place? That's really a great uh, question and I, I'm
1: more than happy to give the answer, especially to people who are perhaps younger in their careers, because I did not think this would be my career at all. Had you told me this 30 years ago, I would have looked at you like, what is up with this man? Why why does he think that's what I'm going to do? I had no clue. Um, I did a bachelor's in psychology, master's. I was an organizational psychologist for a long time. Then I got a little bit bored. I felt I needed a challenge. I went back to grad school and I studied decision making. Um, But in the course of that, I was invited to teach genetic counselors. I was invited to teach them the psychological underpinnings of medical decision-making. So I sat in on consultations and I thought, wow, on one hand, these professionals are great. They're so smart. They have so much knowledge and so much compassion. And on the other hand, there are people listening to them who really have no clue. I mean, you start with the genes and the chromosomes and with recessive and dominant and people get lost. They really do. So I saw a major disconnect between the knowledge on one hand, the people receiving it on the other. And there you have the decision down the road. What is it based on? How can we improve that? So gradually I felt that doing medical decision-making work was really a mission that if I could help people with that, then this is where I should go. And and here I am. Mm
0: -hmm. Was some of the work that you had done with Dr. Daniel Kahneman also uh, a part of the reason why you pursued your career uh, as well at Princeton?
1: So so actually, no, we were working on happiness together.
0: Oh, I see. We
1: were working on how do people evaluate their life or even their financial circumstances and just looking at the psychology behind that, that was uh, somewhat unrelated. So I, I basically left the work I was doing with him on happiness to pursue a course of my own on medical decision-making where mm-hmm. I felt, I felt I could make more of a difference. And that mattered to me, mm-hmm. especially with medical decision-making. I mean, as we speak about it, we'll, we'll talk about many diseases and medical conditions and issues and things and, and These are very tough. And to the degree that you can help, I think you really should. And that's also actually why I wrote the book, Your Life Depends on It, because I wanted people to be able to read not just my academic papers, which honestly, what layman ever reads an academic paper and -hmm. who can blame them, Uh, but to Mm -hmm. reach out, pick up a book, and understand what's happening to them in the medical context and then what they can do about it.
0: Mm -hmm. At the same time, patients, they're now becoming so Uh, educated. They know about so many different treatments, uh, healthcare conditions, and they almost demand particular healthcare to be delivered to them. Mm -hmm. right? So what do we mean by healthcare consumers? Is it a good thing? What is your perspective? I
1: think it's a complicated thing. I think it is not inherently good or bad, but I think it's more complicated than people understand. So for example, you said, People are more educated, people are more informed. Let's rephrase so people have more information available to them. Do they fully understand it? I'm not sure.
2: Yeah.
1: Is the information always valid? So as I was doing research for my book, I looked, for example, at advertisements from cancer center treatment, from cancer treatment centers. And sometimes they post ads that will talk about hope which is great because if you have cancer, you want hope, but what kind of hope is the treatment offering you? Um, How much will it cost? What are the risks? How many people will actually enjoy the benefits? Is it a hundred out of a hundred? Is it 95 out of a hundred? Is it 12 out of a hundred? So this is information that you need to have in order to make an informed decision. And, you know, I, I told you, it was going to get heavy and it's heavy because when you choose something, uh, for God forbid, for someone's cancer, then you're a healthcare consumer. But what if you get it wrong? It's not like you got the wrong, the wrong uh, a pair of jeans. So right. being a healthcare consumer is is a bit of a hit or miss. There now, there's something else you said, and you said it tentatively. You said maybe patients now demand treatments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Skip the maybe, Tim. Patients actually demand treatments. There's a study amazing by a physician named Heather Liu. Um, It came out in 2017 in the journal of the American medical association. She asked 2000 physicians um, over the past period of time. Did you prescribe things that you didn't think you needed to medically like tests or even procedures? Mm -hmm. The vast majority said yes. Now, why did you do that? Around 80-something percent said, because I was afraid of being sued, if I didn't. (laughs) And do you want to venture a guess on how many of them said, because the patients demanded it? This treatment or procedure or test that they didn't think was necessary.
0: Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. What percent?
0: Yeah, uh, 10. Oh, optimist. Go higher. Much much higher, right? 50? 50. 59,
1: 59%. That's right. 59%. So, people are healthcare consumers, right? I mean, you go into Olive Garden and you want more sauce. You ask more sauce. You're you're demanding. This is how Mm -hmm. you like your whatever, or you want more olive oil. That's great. They give it to you. You go into the doctor's office and you want more testing and they give it to you. Wait wait a minute, it's not quite a parallel picture, your expertise in what you like to eat is not really identical to your expertise in your medical needs. Mm
0: -hmm. And the
1: harm of having too much garlic sauce is different from having too much testing or a procedure done that you don't really need. So is healthcare consumerism good? I think, again, it's a complicated picture, we need to understand that it's complicated. Some aspects of it are actually good, because it empowers us It means that like an olive garden where they ask you, what would you like? Now your doctor asks you and takes into account your preferences. So do you want knee surgery or do you prefer physical therapy? That's Mm -hmm. up to you. Mm -hmm. If assuming that they're medically identical, nobody can say, oh, Tim, let me decide for you. No, they'll ask you, what do you prefer? We have option A, we have option B. But in order to be a good healthcare consumer, you need to know what each of them entails. And if mm-hmm. all they tell you about an option is, oh, there's great hope, with this option,
2: right. um,
1: you won't be making an informed choice. That's mm-hmm. too bad.
0: Yeah, so the important variables here are the outcomes, the outcomes that the patients can expect based on their baseline uh, knowledge and based on the communication standards of the physicians. Are they really speaking in the same language that their patients can understand? Uh, and that has a lot of consequences on the, the, the outcomes, which are not, as you mentioned, uh, something that's trivial, right? Mm-hmm. Like genes or other kinds of products that people consume and buy. Uh, so are, are there differences among, dif- differences among characteristics of the patients who are able to make better decisions versus others or physicians? What are some of the variables that then can predict the, the better outcomes patient outcomes that's your research
1: so one one variable that can predict better outcomes is comprehension Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when we understand why we're taking a pill Mm -hmm. then we will take the pill yeah if someone understands why they're taking statin even though it doesn't do anything i mean what does it mean it doesn't do anything you don't feel the effect okay That's kind of okay, because it means it's preventing problem. If someone is taking medication for atrial fibrillation and they understand that the goal of this medication is not to be felt because atrial fibrillation is asymptomatic, but to prevent stroke. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's preventing stroke. They're more likely to persist. So comprehension breeds adherence. And that is good because adherence leads to better health outcomes. So what would get in the way of comprehension? Um, one variable that's really out there significantly is health literacy. It's people's ability to understand, to read, to deal with medical information. And it's even more complicated than that. Health literacy is actually fascinating because it also includes the ability to ask, just ask a question, to probe, to seek more information, to ask your doctor, wait, doctor, you said it was this, but what is it? what exactly do you mean by that? Can you tell me, can you explain? That is also health literacy. So some people around 90 million, actually people in the U.S. are described as having health, low health literacy, like the level of a sixth, of a sixth grader. And you know what? They can get sick. Yeah. You and I are very educated people. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Nobody asks us, are you educated? Okay, now you have permission to be sick. Everyone yeah. can be sick. So mm-hmm. that's a major component out there. Um, it, Of course, it corresponds or it connects to the readability level of texts. And if you go on Wikipedia, and I did that, I did that exercise for the book. I was looking for various things, various issues like uh, resuscitation and things about anesthesia and whatever boob jobs I was looking for even (laughs) because I thought if someone wants to read about it right what sort of information is there and when I checked I did this exercise where I checked the readability level of the texts they were at college level Mm -hmm. but to be resuscitated you don't need to be you don't need to have gone to college so we talked about comprehension adherence health literacy and readability level but I want to point out to something else. And that's and that's the reality of life. Um, and I learned it, I think it was 2007. I spoke at a national conference of genetic counselors. And I gave them an exercise. I was very cruel. I gave them an exercise in probabilities that they deal with day in, day out. But I made up all sorts of probabilities about horses and things. that's completely made up and stuff they'd never seen before. And they got mixed up. They're very educated. And they know probabilities, but they got mixed up. I stumped them. So this Mm -hmm. means that when the context is new to you, as oftentimes medical context is new to us, you don't really understand. They're Really, their job is to understand probabilities, and they weren't doing a great job. So I'm not saying that to shame them. I'm saying that, and I did the exercise to show that this is hard this is for real difficult. Now let's put on another layer of difficult. And that is you're not sitting um, at the in Kansas City at the National Conference of Genetic Counselors, right, you're sitting in a doctor's office, and they tell you, Mr. Z, um, you have blah, blah, blah. And you know, once you hear blah, 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 isn't good. And it's most likely not good. You're scared. You probably got there because you were scared in the first place. Maybe you're in pain. There's a lot of uncertainty. What do you think that does to our cognitive level? It, it does not improve it. So those same genetic counselors said, listen, when people come, we don't even ask about their education. We talk to them at a fifth grade level because we know that when they're worried about hereditary cancer, about prenatal testing, they're scared. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're looking at someone that technically, theoretically is educated and has high health literacy and has all the capabilities in the world, but in practice, they are 10 years old and they need their mom to hold their hands. And we're not saying that in a belittling yeah. way. We're just saying this, this is the reality. We have to acknowledge that
2: mm-hmm. if we
1: want to have a, a discussion with them. you know. And we started with healthcare consumers and making informed right. choice and it needs to be based on information that we actually understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a particular appreciation of uh, continuing to be a healthcare professional uh, you know, throughout my career, uh, even though I've worked for 17 years in the pharmaceutical industry, I've never forgotten the fact that I'm a healthcare professional who received training in in pharmacy, right? And in pharmacy, we have a particular appreciation also of mm-hmm. uh, we, we understand the value of medications and knowing about medications and adherence. You know, once you're prescribed medication, only a third of patients actually adhere to them uh, and we are all patients at one time or another, whether or not we are health, healthcare prof- healthcare professionals. And we know right. that it's not easy to uh, understand what the medication is for. First of all, what, how it works on your body, and then to actually adhere to that treatment regimen, right? And so there is a very there is a high variability among the among different healthcare professionals in terms of how much pharmacology uh, training they undergo. And so uh, your comments made me think of some of my first experiences with Dr. Keith Ferdinand, who had published um, guidelines uh, on healthcare, on uh, hypertension and blood pressure, mm-hmm. American guidelines, JNC7. And uh, I was just a pharmacy student back then, uh, Talia, and uh, he had me check the pulses of his patient's, patient's feet and actually go over all the medications that they took, t- train them about their medications. Mm-hmm. He actually had a room that did not re- generate any revenue for his office. And he's an academic a cardiologist who's globally renowned. But but And that room was dedicated to patients after receiving a, you know, receiving a particular service or just being counseled, let's say, by pharmacy students such as myself. They would go into that room and they would watch videos, in-depth mm. videos on particular disease states. And that was in 2005. That was when I was actually starting out my career in the pharmaceutical industry, because my my big driver for why I wanted to work in pharmaceutical industry was because I wanted to change some of the trends that I had seen at the time of like medications being recalled after they were approved by the FDA uh, due to safety issues that you know came to light after approval, uh, mm-hmm. you know post uh, phase four studies and so forth, so on. So for me, for while for many other people it may be a topic that may be boring or not of, as interesting. Uh, I understood how people's life depends on the drugs they take and the care they receive. So uh, that's why your, you know, your your comments and your book, which you've actually dedicated to uh, to healthcare decisions, is, is is so interesting and so timely today as well, because I I, I think a lot of the patients their healthcare literacy. Uh, when it's lower than others, uh, when it's compounded by the fact that they may not even get access to care in the first Mm -hmm. place and their care may be discontinuous as they move from one physician to another or from one hospital to another, despite all that healthcare technology, then that even adds to the problem, right? Would you, what uh, research have you seen or what do you think, what are are the implications of people changing different physicians and healthcare institutions and how they can make decisions when they, when they go through from one system to another, let's say.
1: I'm, I am so glad you brought this up. So I'll, I'll start with a technical level. That's the last, that's the least interesting, but it's still there. So since there's oftentimes no overlap between healthcare delivery systems, then your information is lost. And that's, if you're a patient, if, if you're if you're listening to this and you're a 23 year old, you could say, oh, who cares? My information was lost. I didn't do anything interesting last year. Well, good for you. I'm very happy for you. Worst case scenario, maybe you had uh, a flu shot, but if you are older and have comorbidities, it's really important to track you over mm-hmm. time. So that is an issue. And actually it's an issue that as a patient, you cannot overcome. Someone is doing that for you. Someone is doing that to your information and, ugh. I don't want to use uh, bad, bad language on the podcast, but I think you are, you're in a bind. You really are. Um, to go to the more psychological points. Um, I talk about barriers in, in my book. And you just said, your life depends on it. And yeah, that's the name of my book. And it's like, but it's for real. It's like, really, it's really there. Um, I list the barriers to us making good or better medical and health choices. And the first one is our relationship with our physician. Um, When we trust our physician, we're more likely to follow, to adhere to their treatment. I find this in research. Other people have found that that's actually not surprising. If you trust someone, you follow what they say, you believe it's in your best interest. Now you could say, well, okay, but you know, if someone has HIV, they should take their medication. Who cares? You think your doctor is unpleasant? Well, who cares about the doctor? It's about you. Mm -hmm. But the the truth is that people really need and value that relationship with their physician. Even in HIV, they're less likely to take their medication if they feel the doctor doesn't care about them. They're more likely the one one predictive question. That's like a technical statistical thing that I found cool because, you know, I'm a full professor of psychology. Obviously, there's a degree of nerdness there. So (laughs) looking to predict adherence, um, one question that was a single predictor, just this question could tell the difference or had some significance in whether or not people adhered was the doctor knows me as a person.
0: Yeah.
1: How amazing is that? They know me as a person. It's
0: so rare these days, right? I'm so glad you brought this up. (laughs)
1: It's rare. I think also, you know, you're a pharmacist and pharmacists are very trusted and actually they see the patient and they sometimes see the patient repeatedly. I remember once receiving medication for something and I went to the pharmacy and the pharmacist looked at me and said, "Um, this is pretty strong stuff. What What have you been taking for this condition up until now? I said, nothing. He said, I would not start with this this is too much. Why did the doctor prescribe this? I would start with something, some herbs. Mm -hmm. So I bought the herbs and never went back to the doctor because I thought, you know, the pharmacist makes money either way. They didn't have to tell me they didn't have to put themselves between me and my physician, but I really, I really appreciate their opinion. Mm -hmm. So there and there was even no relationship there, but there was a sense of caring. The fact that they looked at me, they lifted their eyes from the prescription, took a look and said, what's going on? And that meant a lot. So when you talk about physicians and, and yes. chronic care and, and, and worse, then definitely the connection is there. I, I want to add something else. And that comes from an amazing talk that I heard from an incredible woman, Diane Mayer, of Mount Sinai hospital. And she really is the mother of palliative care. She's a MacArthur genius. And I, I admire her work and I admire her as a person. And what she said in the talk was all about relationship. She spoke about a woman's doctor, the woman who was dying of cancer. She had moved to a hospice or home hospice. And she said, my oncologist never came to visit me. So the oncologist felt he had failed her the woman didn't expect him to save her life. She understood that sometimes you get sick and sometimes you die. It doesn't mean you failed or your doctor failed, but she said, I just wanted to say thank you to my physician. I just wanted to say thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm. And that, that meant so much to her. So being in a relationship, in a professional relationship with one's patients doesn't mean that you can do everything for them because you can't, because you're human, you can be the best doctor in the world, but, Right. You will still lose some patients, yeah. but showing them that you care is enormous, and it's incredibly appreciated.
0: Oh yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm just uh, you know thinking back to how you know some of the best doctors that I've you know had the pleasure of learning from you know throughout my career in the pharmaceutical industry, and even the first uh, publication that I authored, which was a multidisciplinary team effort. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was a pharmacist early in my career uh, at Sanofi. I got a team together with physicians and nurses to review errors, medication errors Mm -hmm. and their sequela. And inadequate patient profile reviews, inadequate disease management, knowledge deficits came up as some of the top uh, root causes. We read the case studies and they were just so, uh, revealing and so vivid and, and where, and, and they were critical too. So mm-hmm. your, your comments, uh, regarding that patient doctor relationship in which there, there's a lot of the decisions are, uh, are, are critical and, you know, and they're, they're defining moments in, in the care of those patients. Right. And even, even in the routine, I think I hear many patients complain that, look, the doctor really didn't even have his, A chair uh turned towards me i've heard these as well but they were just on the computer they never really even touched me to give me a physical exam or something like that they only see me once a year like i've heard those as well right and i'm not surprised of course you have and the
1: thing is people you know if you think about it the word care right care to care for someone how do i care about you now when i'm looking away I'm not, I'm not making eye contact. What is this? Are we still in a conversation? It's like, Oh yeah, I'm not, you know, do you still exist? I don't know. What, what sort of a thing is that? And and if, if I may, I did a study. I was, I was intrigued by thank you letters to physicians. Mm -hmm. I saw many of them on, on physician walls, on office walls and I decided to analyze. I went online and I looked at thank you letters that people had sent to medical centers. And I saw, it may not surprise you but i wanted to do it methodically i saw that out of 100 letters most people like the 73 mentioned either medical or both the medical aspect and the personality aspect so being having a good personality whatever that means i mean right. personable i guess approachable um and demeanor that was as meaningful as the medical aspect Um, what the the title of the paper comes from one of the letters, a phenomenal doctor and person. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay.
1: It's both. Um, One of the, one of the writers was a, was a husband of a patient. And he said, my wife hasn't quite fully recovered, but we're getting there. And I absolutely loved that because it takes time for outcomes to happen for good outcomes. I mean, healing is a process. We know that. Um, and he wasn't just saying, okay, give me, give me the money. I want my wife to be in shipshape. <laughs> he said, I can see that she's getting there. And the doctor made every effort to help her get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say something about every effort. That's crucial. And I want to say that to every healthcare professional out there that's listening. Um, I did a study on deliveries, on births, and specifically on unplanned cesarean delivery. They are not fun. Like nobody wants those. They're just, you don't want to be there, but you are, and you have to, um, we used a very elaborate scale to measure the degree to which the patient was involved in decision making. We didn't find anything because I'm guessing it just didn't happen because there was no time to engage in full on shared decision-making, but we added two questions. Um, every effort was made to include me in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you say every effort, it's like women understand it's an emergency situation. You have maybe 90 seconds from, ma'am, we have to do this to you're in the OR. Um, But if you ask, if you say, look, I'm really sorry. I know this isn't what you had in mind, but this is what's happening with the baby. We would like to deliver him or her now with surgery, cesarean. Is that okay with you? Now, how long did it take me to say that? Right. and it's also exactly. free. And, it's also and it's, free. it doesn't cost it's, anything. <laughs> I love that. Yes, it's for free people. And, right. and women completely appreciated that. So every effort was made to include me in the decision-making process. And every effort was made to support me emotionally. And by every effort, it can be the doctor looked at me and smiled. They mm-hmm. gently touched my arm. It's like right. they were there. They were connected, connecting with me as a person I, I think many times physician are afraid of this they think it will open a floodgate of whatever right uh, when,
0: we're in a litigious it, society and yeah,
1: right. yeah yeah but it just it doesn't it doesn't yeah. i mean people understand that there are constraints but they do appreciate the little that you give them is perceived as so much
0: mm-hmm. yeah talia uh you mentioned you previewed for us uh your book uh, but can you give us a little bit more? I'm I'm curious. We're all curious. <laughs> what well, What is the book about, and who should read it?
1: Okay, um, everyone should read it, and I'll tell you why. I thought that it would be for people who are patients who are experiencing just basically everybody because we all have something medical going on. We all have a health decision. If it's something with your gums, you know, it doesn't have to be. The big C, it can just be something minor, If you're taking vitamins or not taking supplements or not anything. Basically, we all make health and medical decisions all the time for ourselves and for our loved ones. And I thought we would have to read your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. But as I was writing it, I was explaining to readers and to myself, because I was learning a lot in the process, how we became healthcare consumers, how we became to be the ones who are in charge of making choices. Mm -hmm. what is difficult for us how do we mess it up for starters and i'm not even going to go through the numbers because you have an education in pharmacy and it's just going to make you so sad although you know the numbers with with opiates and even with non-adherence and mistakes people make and then i speak about things that make it difficult for us to make really good choices Mm-hmm. Like our relationship with our doctor, like our health literacy or the readability mm-hmm. level of text, mm-hmm. like probabilities that, like, you know, I, I, we never think about this thoroughly when it's a 30% chance of cancer or dying. I, oh, my God. But what does it mean? We don't know. And our doctors are not trying to explain us. So that is difficult. Making choices is difficult. And I talk about these things. I give tools for overcoming these barriers I see. I was going to ask you
0: that. Yeah. Whether or not there are any tips or specific tips in the book. There
1: are, there are many tips. I'll give, I'll give one, I'll give one when it comes to numbers Uh and I'd mentioned, um, cancer treatment centers and the issue of hope. Mm -hmm. And it really, it applies across the board. I mean, it even applies to like if if someone's offering to give you a supplement to make your hair more beautiful. Okay. Let's Mm -hmm. not just talk about depressing things. Um, How many people out of 100 will it help? Mm, That's a good question. Maybe the answer is I don't know. Maybe the answer is everyone. Maybe the answer is uh, two. So once you have this information, you're better equipped to gauge what is being offered to you. And it's fine to ask. It's even our responsibility to ask because it's our body. Um, Something else that I devised is, and, and I'm very proud of it. It's very simple. And I'm, I'm actually really loving the word simple because yes. guess what? Simple is good. It's easy. It's easy to yeah. remember. It, it, yeah. it doesn't fail you when you're being incredibly overwhelmed. So I call it ask, ask about what matters. So when offered something at like a treatment or procedure, ask about what matters. So start with what are the risks and why would you start with the risks? Cause you want to know them uh, don't start with the benefits. The risks are, Whoa, Oh my God. These are, re- these are really major risks. What are the benefits? And then you learn about them. And the third question is a trick question. It's what are the alternatives? That's really important because I started out with our relationship with our doctor Yeah. and we don't want to hurt our doctor. We don't want to undermine their authority. We don't want to aggravate them. We don't want to seem like we're questioning them or doubting them, but we should ask. We should ask, right? Because if I mentioned knee surgery, what if you're freaked out of surgery and that's what your doctor is offering or any kind of stunning or anything? And you're like, okay, uh, well, that's what the doctor says. So I should do it. But if you ask, what are the alternatives? Maybe they'll say, you know, watchful waiting. Oh, what? Watchful waiting? Really? I like that or I don't like that. That's fine. Like now, you know, or physical therapy, you're like, yeah, forget it. I have no discipline better do surgery or yes, I'm an athlete. I would love to do physical therapy. So if you ask about the alternative again, so what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? Mm-hmm. Simple, right? And incredibly right. helpful when you're inundated with information. You ask Not everyone even
0: asks about those alternatives, right? Based on their educational level and background, right? Among patience. And
1: yeah, you know, and I said health literacy is also about yeah. asking questions. Mm-hmm. So let's let's be trained in asking questions and let's feel we have the permission
2: to yeah. ask questions.
1: I mean, it's just it's a funny word, right? We're not kids, we can ask whatever we want. But right. still, in this context, someone has to tell us, yeah, it's okay. Of course it's yeah. okay. It's actually your obligation to ask, mm-hmm. so go ahead.
0: Yeah. And whether or not we are healthcare professionals, we're all healthcare consumers, as you uh, put it. I think we spoke um, quite a lot uh, extensively about the uh, patient-specific factors Mm -hmm. uh, in decision-making. Well, uh, and we've cited some uh, research as well, right? So I, I know there's research that shows that the longer- that uh, physicians or healthcare providers are in practice, the the lower the quality of care it is that they deliver because they often uh, start to adapt new biases. They're set in their ways, the way they wanna treat, and they may not know some alternatives or they Mm -hmm. may not inform the patients of some alternatives. So I want to ask you for any takeaways you have for, for patients, doctors, and healthcare systems. For you, any final takeaways that you have uh, mm-hmm. for how to make better uh, health decisions, Talia.
1: Great. So for patients, and that's my go-to, right? That's where I started off. Yes. Um, I think asking about probabilities of things working or not is crucial. Just relying on hope or fear. It won't do. I mean, it's understandable. Of course it is. But it's not a really good way to choose what is being done to you. And also to ask about risks, benefits, and alternatives. And there's, there's a huge chapter I wrote on end-of-life conversations. That's for another podcast, but it's something that needs to be considered. Yeah. For doctors, and it's and, and I'm going to say something for doctors that is actually also applies to, to patients. What we experience, we being doctors or we being patients, feels very, very personal. It's personal if my doctor is looking away from me that's personal why are they looking at me um, if my doctor then feels that there's no connection he or she have no connection with their patients it's something that they feel it's very personal to them um, but the truth is that these are parts these are things that are uh, determined by the healthcare system so what you're experiencing is not only on you you're bearing the brunt but it's not only on you um I would suggest to physicians actually to learn from the doctor that you'd mentioned. They had the room for the videos. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've actually interviewed him on this podcast as well. He was my first interview.
1: Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you told me about him. So I think if you think in terms of maybe a clinic or a healthcare system, this room does bring you money and I'll tell you how it improves patient outcomes because they now understand what you're talking about it reduces the risk of lawsuits because 80% of lawsuits have a component of the doctor didn't explain. Um, and it increases satisfaction. So it does in many ways improve the outcomes for healthcare systems. Um, and there are many takeaways for healthcare systems, but also what I love about what I found is that when you are being good to patients and to physicians, you're not just doing this to be good, you're actually taking care of your own ROI, of your own ratings of your own patient satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So don't think about it as a burden that you need to that you need to carry. Think about this as an amazing opportunity to improve your delivery system, and your own outcomes as a healthcare system.
0: Thank you, Talia. You know, I'm fascinated by how you're inspired by uh, expressing these abstract concepts such as decision making in terms that people can actually utilize and apply in their practice, in their clinic, in their hospital, uh, in their life as well. Mm-hmm. you know so uh, i i thank you very much for a, a lot of great lessons uh, to help us better make health decisions and how help us critically think about how we are creating the environment and how we're creating the resources and generating the the education and the research and- for all of us healthcare consumers, thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you if they're a pharmaceutical company, if they're an innovative mm-hmm. company, they want to improve their decision-making uh, in medicine and healthcare and patient communities, outreach? What, uh, How would you like them to reach out to you? Wonderful. So
1: my name is Talia miron Schatz. I'll spell it because it's not obvious. T A L Y A M I R O N hyphen S H A T Z. So it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is my name, Talia Myron chats without the, the hyphen. And my email is Talia Myron chats at gmail.com. So it's fairly easy to find me and I'm excited to help anyone. I've, I've done a lot of work with the industry and I think it's being demonized a lot And whenever I worked with the healthcare industry or the pharmaceutical industry, I found good people, caring people, smart people doing good, responsible work that helps people because guess what? If there was no pharmaceutical industry, we would not have medication. And what sort of life would that be when we need it?
0: It was an honor and a privilege to hear your perspectives. And your book is called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. Talia, and remind me, when is the book coming out?
1: the book is coming out September twenty eighth, two 2021. I am super excited. Um, It's available for pre order. And I hope it will be read by many people because I hope the message will get across to as many people as possible. So thank you. Your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. Thank you so
0: much. I know that we're going to continue our conversation in the future. Talia, have a great day.
1: That would be great. Thank you so much. You too, Tim. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Tony. Bye.